It's Friday, spring starts this weekend, and the weather is supposed to be glorious. Things are looking up in Northeast Ohio. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Layla Tassi, who always have very excited voices when I say happy Friday. Yay, happy Friday! <laughs> okay, maybe not. Let's begin. <laughs> What do we know about the NFL draft, which was supposed to be the end-all, be-all event for putting Cleveland on the international sports map? Laura Johnston, it boggles my mind that we're six weeks away knowing as little as we do. What's going on with this thing? That's a really good question. We know it's going to be in person April 29th through May 1st. We know there's going to be some sort of fan fest. It'll take place on North Coast Harbor on the shore of Lake Erie, but the NFL, the Browns, this Cleveland Sports Commission, nobody is really divulging any details. Nothing about crowd size, spectator requirements, entertainment. So it's hard to know why people would be getting excited about this and booking trips to Cleveland if they have no idea what it's going to entail. Well, it's also a major public safety thing, right? Yeah. We have a pandemic going on. This has the potential to bring people from outside Cleveland to Cleveland and yet no one is talking about what they're doing to keep everybody safe. I mean, I think this is kind of shameful. And the answer is, it's up in the air, it's up in the air. And I'm throwing the flag, which is appropriate in this context. <laughs> look, think, think about it. They, you know they've got scenarios. They've got scenarios with a quarter of the expected crowd or half the crowd. And they know how they're going to try and distance and how they're going to ticket. And for them to... We blanketed this. How many reporters do we put on this this week? And everybody's oh, there are probably a dozen just calling sources, like not, you know, just the PR people, but calling the people they know who they think would know something. And we got very little back. Well, and, and the people who would know are claiming, oh, yeah, we're, we're not ready yet. And it's like, yes, you are. You know what you're doing. You ought to give people a clue. It's six weeks away. Look, this has the potential to create an enormous Cleveland coronavirus surge if they yeah. don't do it right. Can I jump in here? I get, I get that everyone is more than eager to get back to life right now and that the, the draft is seen as this great opportunity to promote Cleveland. But is this really the moment to care this much about Cleveland's tourism industry? You know, I was really impressed when the Atlanta mayor, Keisha Lance Bottom, said, please don't come to Atlanta for the NBA All-Star Game which was held there this month earlier. And yet here we are, apparently so desperate for tourism that we're encouraging, what did Eric's Heisig story say, that that hundreds of thousands of people typically descend upon a city right. for something like this with a pandemic still underway? Have we lost our minds? <laughs> Am I the only one who still has a sense of reason about, I mean, okay, some people have the vaccine, but we are not, this is happening at the end of April. That's just weeks away. We are not ready for that. That well, is too much, too fast. My point is, maybe they're planning to, to keep it safe, but six weeks out, they certainly owe it to us to tell us this is involving public subsidies and public money. This was a huge campaign to bring it here, and they all deferred to the almighty NFL. Well, the right. NFL, NFL, it's like, come on. There, there's no way that the police aren't, aren't deep in the planning and that City Hall isn't deep in the planning and Dave Gilbert at Destination Cleveland isn't deep in the planning. And it's ridiculous that we're this close without knowing. I really do get that feeling that they are just waiting for the NFL. They keep being like, oh, the NFL is going to announce something. And they don't want to step on any toes because they're, they so want the NFL to come here. I mean, the idea of us ever getting a Super Bowl is questionable, right? So, I mean, in town, the Browns will eventually go at some point. But this is the big <laughs> deal that everybody has been talking about. And yeah, they're just waiting. And I, and I totally get Layla's point. Like, 
this does seem like, you know, asking, asking for a problem. They point to the Super Bowl in Tampa. They say it was done safely, that there were time tickets for some of these activities, and they saw a very small bump in cases afterward. But you're right. Like, this is the very end of the pandemic. We hopefully we don't want to get a lot of people sick. Yeah, just hang on a little longer and then we'll we'll enjoy everything. But well, the, the other alternative was to do what they did with Las Vegas is to say this isn't fair. We did all this work to get the draft. It's not going to be the full crowd. We're not going to get what we expected. Let's 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 make this a, a, a lesser thing and give it to us in two more years. Let yeah, us that's have a great, it. That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. But I apparently Dave Gilbert told Mary Kay Cabot that he never thought of that. And it's like, yeah, that, that, that's not true. Everybody thought of that. This is not <laughs> this is not the event that we thought it would be. It'd be like getting the Republican National Convention and then having what they had in Charlotte, which is nothing. So so anyway, I, I, I just think, though, it it's time. It's way past time. What are the plans? What are the safety precautions? How many people? Well, you know, there might be people in Cleveland that want to get out of town so they don't get the coronavirus. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. As Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Michael O'Malley declined yet again to file felony charges against a police officer, Leila Tassi O'Malley ran for office saying that he was going to bring some rigor to the investigation of police officers. In one way, he, any police-involved shooting he tosses it to the attorney general and has no accountability for it. He claims it gets rid of a conflict of interest, but it does deprive the voters of being able to do anything about uh, mm-hmm. decisions they disagree with. But this is not a fatal case. This is a, a police use of force case. And we seem to have a pattern here. What happened right. in this latest example? Well, first of all, can we just have a round of applause for my colleague Corey Schaefer for this good get? I love everything about the reporting of this story, including Corey's nuanced jabs at the lame responses of the prosecutor's office here. So prosecutor Michael Malley's office had been refusing for months to answer any of Corey's questions about whether Cleveland police officer John Casimer had been charged with any crimes related to three use of force incidents against protesters at that May 30th George Floyd demonstration in downtown Cleveland. On that day, Casimer had hit a peaceful protester in the back of the legs with a baton Pepper sprayed another in the face and used his baton to hit a third person who later needed stitches on his head. So getting no answers from the county prosecutor's office, Corey submitted a public records request to the city prosecutor's office and managed to get documents that indicated that the office had, in fact, referred the case to the county prosecutor, but the county had declined to take it, noting that it didn't seem that the victims had suffered serious injury and therefore Casimer's actions didn't rise to the level of felonious assault. So first of all, How could anyone suggest that someone who's been struck by a police baton or pepper sprayed unnecessarily hasn't suffered injury? I think there are civil suits related to these cases. And I'm pretty sure if I hit my neighbor with a blood object or pepper sprayed her, my defense couldn't be, oh, come on, she's fine. (laughs) (laughs) But didn't one of them get stitches, Layla? I mean, if you need stitches, that is is the qualification. But, you know, you know what? God help the protester who uses a bullhorn to, too close to a restaurant hostess. Right. Right. Mike O'Malley. So, you know, second of all, letting cops off the hook seems to be a pattern for the office, which is absolutely shocking to me, given the fact that Mike O'Malley took down his predecessor, Tim McGinty, based on how the grand jury review shook out on the Tamir Rice case with no charges for Officer Tim Lohman, who, who shot Tamir. 
And, you know, this is uh, leads me to my favorite passage of Corey's story, which was this. O'Malley, who ousted Tim McGinty from office in 2016, in part by capitalizing on the public's outrage over McGinty's handling of the killing of 12-year-old Tamir Rice by Cleveland police officer Tim Lohman, has yet to prosecute any police officer in connection with a use of force incident. Just I love how Corey just drops that in there. <laughs> you know, you do you do make a great comparison, though, because O'Malley's office is the one that that filed assault charges. that could have p- people in prison for their use of a bullhorn. Right. Where where because they said the person suffered hearing damage, which good luck proving that in this case, you have somebody whacked in the head needing stitches. And you say that this isn't aggravated assault. It, it's really kind of inexcusable. But, you know, O'Malley ran without opposition last time, so, mm-hmm. so he's going to be there for a while. This is the pattern. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Larry Householder still a member of the Ohio House? Jane Cahoon, it boggles my mind that these people <laughs> cannot come up with a way to oust this guy who has disgraced them all and embroiled them in the biggest scandal and bribery scheme in our history. I mean, is there a better example of this legislature's inability to act and do the right thing. I mean, it's been nearly eight months since Householder was arrested on a federal corruption charge, and they still can't decide what to do about this. Apparently, they've got enough votes in the House to expel him, but the Speaker, Bob Cup, wants more than a just a slim majority of his fellow House Republicans to get on board with this. And there happens to be a small but influential group of Republican lawmakers who are holding this up. Surprise, surprise, including Bill Seitz, a uh, householder ally who, as we talked about last week, actually got on the House floor and said it's false to imply that House Bill 6 was corrupt and <laughs> and, and suggested that the racketeering case against householder might be weak, despite guilty pleas from two key players, as well as the political nonprofit that helped funnel more than, say it with me, $60 million <laughs> in first energy bribery money to, to in this scheme. So anyway, they met, the House Republicans met behind closed doors on, on Tuesday. And believe it or not, Householder was in the room, apparently didn't say anything, but, you know, and then they basically <laughs> didn't decide anything. Householder is still says he's qualified to serve. He was elected. He's correct. He was elected to, so- to serve his district. But there so he is. You, we got we've got Dave Yost going to the Supreme Court of Ohio to force a Cleveland City Council member into suspended status because he's charged with with stealing from the city. And the Supreme Court has identified a panel that will decide this. Where is Dave Yost on this? Why? Why? why I, I think we... he. It's really up to the House to expel him. I That's don't it. think. That's yeah, the only way. I, I'm. I'm pretty sure. Um, you know, there there are some other options, but I think Yost wanted to do something about this. But legally, it's really the um, the expulsion tool is what the what the House has here. So a city council member accused of getting somewhere in the neighborhood of one hundred thirty thousand dollars can't serve if if this panel says so. <laughs> the guy. Yeah, I don't know. Of- Maybe there's a way he could at least get him suspended because. Householder still collecting the salary of, I believe it's like nearly seventy thousand uh, dollars, you know, annual salary. So, you know, from the time he was arrested, he's he's uh, banked, you know, a fair amount of money still uh, working as a lawmaker. 
Well, and let's talk about this cup thing where he says, I want more than a slim majority. Who cares? Just get him yeah. out of there. Who yeah. cares how many yeah. people vote for it? Is that is that just a, a bogus play to keep his own job? He's afraid that if he removes him, Bill Seitz will start coming in. And what is it with Bill Seitz, man? He has like wrapped <laughs> his arm around the biggest corruption scheme it's, in history. He's tried really to, amazing. And, he, you and know, he, and he tried to preserve the billion dollar gift to First Energy. Yeah. And he's yeah. like, what is yeah. this guy doing? I know him. And then the speaker is just, you know, he's this soft spoken guy who just seems, you know, he just deflects question after question on this. Like, nope, there's not any. Nope, there's not a decision, you know. And then the Democrats, meanwhile, they're in the minority. They don't have a lot of power, but they're kind of hanging back, you know, waiting for the Republicans to to clean up their mess. But there's probably going to reach a point where they they try to do something more aggressive to to push this. Amazing. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Before we close out the pandemic this summer and move on, are there lessons we should be learning from it and things we should be doing to be prepared for the next one? Laura Johnston, this is a trick question because it's really about what are the questions that we need to answer, not looking for you to solve the history of pandemics in a a three-minute talk. Okay, good, because that's a big order. But we are asking (laughs) readers for their ideas. Because the pandemic has laid bare a lot of inequities, a lot of problems with the systems we rely on every day to keep us safe, educate our kids, provide money when we lose our jobs. There's a lot of things we can do better and a lot of things other countries did better in this pandemic. So consider this death toll. 538,000 Americans have died. That's more than combat losses in every conflict since the Civil War. South Korea, meanwhile, reported about 1,700 deaths. And if we had about the same death rate, we would have about 11,000 deaths. This idea came from a person that's on my text account. I send out texts every morning and I'd sent out a text about I'm getting the vaccine and it, it's a relief and isn't this is wonderful that we can move forward. And most people came right back and said, oh, I felt the same way. I'm on my way to Florida finally. And, you know, all sorts of jubilation. But one one person came back and said, before you get all excited and happy, don't you think there are a whole lot of things we need to fix that we we learned that this has been pretty much a disaster and they're right. I mean, we, we screwed this up. The only people who didn't screw this up are the scientists. And I bet nobody knows the names of the scientists who came up with the miracle of these vaccines in short order. They're the ones that did this great thing. So we said, OK, that's a great idea. Let's let's seek what people think the questions are for where we went wrong. I mean, obviously, the public health delivery system is a mess. County health boards are ridiculous and unaccountable. The state health department is is using, I guess, computers from the 1970s. I mean, nothing, nothing in that vein seemed to work. So clearly we need to talk about that. The whole idea of public health orders and how they work is something to review. But but the person that wrote me said it's also the the underserved populations right. were screwed once again. And that we, we as a society always do that. And how do we get it right? Because well, there will this, be another one. Right. And this this question and the thoughts about it can go so wide, right? Like all the moms who left their jobs to care for their kids because they didn't have school. Like what can we learn for keeping women in the workforce? What can we learn about the education that was delivered to kids while they were remote? We've already gotten two responses from readers. I thought they're both pretty smart. One is the idea of masks, that we should be used to wearing them. And maybe if we're sick, we should wear them to protect other people on a regular basis. Wear them to the doctor's office. I don't know how well that would go over, but it's an interesting question. 
And another one was, you know, look at the health of Americans overall, that the people who died had underlying health conditions and we should treat those and, and you know, give priority to those people and, you know, hopefully get our act together and be a little healthier as a country. Yeah. And I have dozens more that I got a catalog from. You know, honestly, even though masks have been generally annoying to wear, I don't miss any of the sicknesses that my kids brought home to me (laughs) during, you know, before the pandemic. I mean, there was a year I think I had strep throat twice and hand, foot and mouth disease. We all had that. I mean, my fingernails (laughs) fell off. What? Oh. I never, I never want to experience those things again. And I would, I don't mind wearing a mask just to protect our, our family from those sorts of scourges. I hate, I hate it. I don't like it. I want to do it as little as possible. Yeah, I'll do it when I have to. But... How about I send my little vectors of disease no, no, over no, to your no. house I, when this I'm, pandemic's over? I'm married to a teacher. I get all the exposure. <laughs> good point. Good point. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What does an investor in Lordstown Motors say in his lawsuit about the readiness of the company to start producing electric trucks? I've said for a while that I think there's something very suspicious about this company, but for the answer, we're turning to our automotive expert, Layla Atas. <laughs> okay, Layla, I'm a sport expert on this podcast. <laughs> oh my God, I got to compose myself. Matthew Rico, an investor in Lordstown Motors, sued the company Thursday, just a few days after an analyst reported the company's pre-orders for its vehicles, quote, are largely fictitious and used as a prop to raise capital and confer legitimacy. Ouch. (laughs) The SEC has launched an investigation. Rico's attorneys, I think, are trying to make this a class action suit. They're claiming that the company's misinformation led investors to pay artificially inflated prices for the company's shares. And, you know, so that's on the heels of this damning report by financial analyst Hindenburg Research, the headline of which was the Lordstown Motors Mirage, fake orders, undisclosed production hurdles, and a prototype inferno. And (laughs) (laughs) that's so dramatic. The inferno here refers to the fact that the prototype of one of the company's first vehicles burst into flames on the test drive. I'm sorry. The company's CEO, Stephen Burns, is is trying to backpedal out of all this by saying, you know, come on now. The pre-orders were just to gauge interest. Nobody actually thought that those were real orders so that we're actually ready to begin production. But I, I, but I said that, this is just the beginning of the story. But that that's that's really telling because I think everybody thought when they said they had pre-orders, they were claiming to have orders. Not me. Right, I, of I, this, course. Well <laughs> this I mean what what was always suspicious about this is after the Lordstown plant closed, this thing came out of nowhere and Donald Trump was pushing it because he was getting pounded. He had promised to bring jobs right. back to the Youngstown area. And it seemed like it was all a dodge to me, but it kept going. It kept getting momentum and it kept getting talked about. And, you know, Rob Portman went with Donald Trump to look at one of the trucks. And, you know, now now this comes out and the SEC is investigating. And I have a feeling this is all going to collapse appropriately in flames. <laughs> I need to work the phrase prototype inferno into my next column. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. I, this is Laura Johnston. I saw a headline yesterday pop out that they're ready to launch a second kind of vehicle. And I was like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> yeah. there. I, look, I hope I hope it's a legitimate company, but I from the beginning, it's raised serious questions for for me. And, you know, the plant's supposed to be used for the batteries for the thing. And, and if there's no truck, then there's no need for those batteries. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. When is the primary election to replace Marsha Fudge as the Northeast Ohio congressperson now that she has started her new role 
is head of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Jane Kuhn, I feel like we're getting the shaft because we're going to be without representation in Congress for the better part of a year. And that doesn't seem right, but I guess there's precedent. Yeah, it's going to be longer than we thought. Governor Mike DeWine set the primary for August 3rd, and then the new congressperson will be officially chosen in the November 2nd general election. Although I have to say, since this district so heavily favors Democrats for all intents and purposes, it will be decided on August 3rd, the, whoever the Democrat um, is who emerges from that primary. But I guess they just couldn't make the timing any earlier because the Senate vote to confirm Secretary Fudge was was rather late. And, you know, they need to go back and allow enough time for printing ballots and sending, ball, you know, overseas ballots and all sorts of things that they have to do to plan a, an election. So that's the situation the candidates have until May 5th to file. So we should know how many millions more Democrats are in the race by then. What's sad about this is if the election had been in, in a better time frame, then you, the, whoever lost would have still had a chance to run for Cleveland mayor. Like, so if Nina Turner is one of the chief candidates here and probably has a, the best shot of winning, but it, if she were to lose in the primary, she would have still been able to enter the, the Cleveland race. But now, because this is so late, it's past the filing deadline for that and can't happen. It's a crowded field. And, yeah, and we got seven Democrats. I don't know if you want to know who the others are besides Nina Turner. Sure. Probably the most prominent one is, is County Councilwoman Chantel Brown, who heads the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party as well. And then we got former uh, state senator um, Shirley Smith, former state reps John Barnes Jr. and Brian Flannery, former councilman Jeff Johnson and Navy veteran Tariq Shabazz. So and as I said, more more could get in. Who knows? But it's really a race between Nina Turner and Chantel. The That's party machinery yeah. is supporting Chantel, who remains the county Democratic chairperson. But Nina Turner has money and big time recognition. And she, she, she just keeps getting endorsed. I mean, she had another endorsement yeah. that she released today. So I, I give the edge to, to Nina Turner in this case. It's this week in the CLE. We've talked a good bit about the mass vaccination clinic at Cleveland's Wolstein Center. But Akron has one, too, and it's moving. Laura Johnston, why is it moving and where is it going? It's moving before it's even started. So the idea was they were going to put it at Chapel Hill Mall on Akron's north side, which has been this long struggling mall with plenty of empty space. But they're going to move it to the fairgrounds in Talmadge instead because there's a buyer for that mall and it's going to be redeveloped as a business park and they don't want to hinder the progress. OK, well, I, I hope <laughs> I, I hope. I mean, it runs as efficiently as the Wolstein Center one. It's a great operation. We're trying to do some uh, stories on some of the Army people that are doing it because they're guests of the city and they're saving our lives. And, this, and they're, they're about 11. Friendly. Yeah, <laughs> there's about 11 of these statewide. DeWine spoke yesterday from the Cintas Center in Cincinnati. So that's going to open soon, too. I think Kroger is doing a lot of that. So we're going to be seeing a lot more of these mass vaccination centers. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's beat up on Dave Yost again. Yesterday, we <laughs> talked about whether Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost was playing politics and grandstanding with his lawsuit about the federal stimulus package. But at least that involved money coming to Ohio. Now he's filed an appearance in the battle over the Keystone Pipeline. Jane Cahoon, what's his standing to even do that? Now, Chris, there are principles to stand up for here. And um, he thinks this does have a effect on Ohioans. Uh, he's jumped into this multi-state lawsuit with other attorneys general around 
the country, challenging the Biden administration's decision to to cancel the Keystone pipeline from Canada. They say he doesn't have the authority to to revoke this permit that's that's needed. Well, his reasoning, which you asked about, is he says it's more dangerous and more expensive to ship oil by truck or train than by pipeline. It's a decision that's bad for the environment, bad for Ohioans' wallets, and bad for American jobs, and unconstitutional to boot. So that is his reasoning. You know, he seems to be taking on Biden at any chance he gets. As as you mentioned, there's already this challenge to the stimulus plan, and he's suing the Census Bureau on the data. So he's getting some national hub here. Yeah, which, I, you know, I had always thought that his goal was the governor's office, but I'm starting to think he has national aims. Is this guy looking to think he's a presidential candidate or something? I, mean, I wonder. I mean, his name was out there for the Senate for a while, but then he quickly said, no, he's not. He's not running for that. He's he loves he's always wanted to be attorney general and he loves, loves, loves doing what he's doing. So, yeah, even though he's doing stuff that really doesn't apply to his job. <laughs> I mean, Mike DeWine did a lot of that when he was attorney general mm-hmm. and appeared in cases that had nothing to do with us. Uh, Dave Yost seems to have ramped that up. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Has the attempted scamming of Ohio's unemployment system abated at all? Jane Cahoon, we can get through this one quickly. Big yes, right? No, I mean, big no, big no. (laughs) No, scammers are still targeting this beleaguered system. They had nearly 20,000 claims flagged for potential fraud in the last week alone. You know, this surge started in like January, February, and it just continues. They still see us as vulnerable, even though, you know, the state recently signed contracts worth more than 10 million bucks to try to detect and prevent this fraud. But no, it's still it's still going on. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. That wraps up another week of podcasts. You guys have big weekend plans? There's no more skiing. It's done. What but the shame. weather's going to be fabulous. The weather's going to so, be beautiful. You know, my key word this weekend is outdoors. Yeah, yeah I'm going to get the tennis rackets out. Switch right from one season to the next. And that's safe, right? You can do that. That There's distancing in tennis if you switch courts on the opposite sides of the net. Actually, they did come out. The USDA came out with ways last year that you could never touch your opponent's ball. Like you would only serve with your balls and they would just have to like kick them back, you know. And But it is nice. They played all through the pandemic. <laughs> and there's something very therapeutic about whacking a ball. I'm telling you, it's great. Wayla, you got plans? No. <laughs> <laughs> weekend of survival. Well, you know, my husband's a nurse. He works every weekend for our child care plan. And that means I'm on baby kid duty Saturday, Sunday. So at least we'll get outside. So yeah, it'll be outside. It'll yeah. be sunny. It'll be, it'll be warm. It's supposed to All get right. up to 60 on Sunday, I think. Oh, so. yeah. yeah, it's supposed bring to be it, Bring it. All right. Well, I hope you have a good weekend. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to Layla for joining this podcast. And we will be back Monday with another roundup of the news. 